It's warrantless surveillance. It's mass data collection like Snowden revealed for emails and things, just for our financial records. So we don't like it. But at the very least, we should have equal treatment suffering under this regime. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? I hope you all had an amazing Christmas. Bitcoin is absolutely flying, giving us the best present, a new all-time high. It's what an amazing end of the year. I think we're all a little bit excited about this. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Peter and Jerry from Coin Center, where we're going to be discussing FinCEN's recently proposed new regulations. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing show sponsors. Today, we're going to be kicking off with Casa, the very best in Bitcoin security. Now, with Bitcoin mooning, some of you may be seeing your Bitcoin holding, shooting up in value. So it's probably time to really consider your security. Have you got robust security procedures in place? Are you protecting your Bitcoin? Now, this was something I was worried about coming up to seven months ago now. So I reached out to Nick, the CEO of Casa. I was like, look, man, help me get this shit sorted. So he helped me out. We got myself set up with Casa, and now I am protected from hackers, my own idiotic mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. Honestly, it gives me so much peace of mind. And if you are thinking about your security, then Casa has a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that comes at only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and that also comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. That includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best in class in security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security, and you can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we're going to talk about my good friends at sportsbet.io, who have been spreading the word of Bitcoin globally. How did they do this? Well, they love their sports. So they sponsored Southampton Football Club. They put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Premier League football club. Also, they are the betting partner of Arsenal. So if you were watching Arsenal yesterday against Chelsea, you would have seen all around the stadium the sportsbet.io advertising, including the Bitcoin logo. They love Bitcoin. They are doing everything they can to promote Bitcoin. They are also the best place for online gaming, and they accept Bitcoin. And they've always got promotions available for new customers. They have markets for everything from the Premier League to US sports. And you can find out more about this all at sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, so onto the show today, and I'm very grateful to have Jerry and Peter from Coin Center on to discuss Steve Mnuchin's proposed new cryptocurrency regulations. Now, Mnuchin is attempting to pass new regulations requiring financial institutions to verify the identity of both senders and recipients of Bitcoin transaction over $3,000. This is a very slippery slope, as the US tends to lead the way on regulations like this, and if they manage to push this through, we may see a lot of other countries follow suit. So it is really important to push back on the proposed rules as much as possible. Now, Coin Center does an amazing job of protecting Bitcoiners from things like this. So I asked Jerry and Peter to come on the show, explain what these new regulations are, what they mean, and also to cover some other subjects. 
Also, make sure you support Coin Center. We often talk about supporting Bitcoin developers and open source developers, and a lot of money has gone into supporting these people. But also, we should be supporting Coin Center. They do so much to protect Bitcoin holders. So please do check out their website. Do consider making a donation to Coin Center. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Right then, Jerry, Peter, how are you both? A uh, little tired, but good. Hey, Peter, we're, we're, we're great, all things considered. You're out there fighting for us Bitcoiners, keeping the dream alive. I actually don't know what we would do without you guys, to be honest. Probably <laughs> in a much worse place. Uh, so I mainly want to talk to you about this FinCEN ruling, but I might, if we can squeeze it in, ask you a little bit about the Stable Act. I don't care about what happened with Ripple. but. Uh, Let's start with the FinCEN. Uh, so a lot of stuff came out very quickly. Uh, somebody I'm not a big fan of, Mr. Mnuchin, seems to want to leave office uh, with quite a oppressive new rule. But for anyone listening, can you explain what it is they're proposing? Yeah, so this is about Bank Secrecy Act regulated institutions, um, which is what the Treasury does, you know, primarily with respect to anti-money laundering policy. They say certain businesses are um, sort of choke points within the financial uh, infrastructure, and we're going to use those choke points to accumulate information about the flow of funds, both domestically and internationally. We're going to use that accumulated information to identify criminal usage of the financial system and stop criminal usage of the financial system. And so your, your listeners are probably well familiar with things like suspicious activity reports, currency transaction reports, the need for certain you know, companies to register with FinCEN as a money services business um, or with similar authorities overseas. This is not just a U.S. concern. The Financial Action Task Force sort of takes these rules from the U.S. and promulgates them all around the world because um, it's a membership association. And if you don't have the same standards as the U.S., you get kicked out of the membership association effectively, and then you're a rogue state. So, you know, these anti-money laundering rules are everywhere. Now, specifically, this rulemaking is about two things. It's about a reporting rule called a currency transaction report that financial institutions need to make. And it's about a record keeping rule, sometimes referred to as a record keeping rule or the record keeping rule. And the currency transaction reporting half of this rulemaking would basically say, look, it's been longstanding practice since the 1970s that if you take more than $10,000 in cash out of your bank, your bank will automatically alert the government to that transaction. They'll just say, look, a whole bunch of cash just left the financial system to this customer. And that's, that's been the case since the 70s for cash withdrawals or other cash payments. And that hasn't applied to crypto withdrawals, despite the fact that crypto, like Bitcoin, is electronic cash. It's, it's best, the best metaphor for understanding Bitcoin is that it's, it's you know, digital cash. In fact, the Satoshi White Paper calls it electronic cash. So to us, it's reasonable that if you have to file a report with the government when you remove $10,000 from your bank in dollars, that you'd also have to have the institution file a report with government when the customer removes $10,000 worth of crypto. So we don't really object to that because at the very least, it's parity with traditional regulations for financial institutions. The problem, and it's a big problem, is that the record-keeping rule that they're imposing for crypto businesses, for crypto exchanges rather, is not 
identical to the record-keeping rules that existing financial institutions have to comply with with respect to dollar transactions. It's much more uh, prescriptive. It doesn't allow for sort of collect the information you get, and if you don't have all the information, that's okay. Take a risk-based approach. Instead, it says you have to collect a lot of specific items with respect to a currency, a virtual currency transaction over $3,000. And those specific items in this list of their items includes the name and physical address of the customer's counterparty in a cryptocurrency transaction. So if you told Coinbase to pay an address that CoinCenter has as a donation address, not at Coinbase, just, you know, it's our Bitcoin address that we generated ourselves, Coinbase will have to, if this rule becomes law, Coinbase will have to say, well, who is this address you want to pay? Give us their name and physical address. And similarly, if you were to receive an incoming transaction from a Bitcoin address, they wouldn't let you have the funds because they wouldn't be able to comply with the record keeping rule until they know the name and physical address of the person who's behind that Bitcoin address that's paying you. And the bottom line is in the traditional financial context, there's all kinds of moments where a financial institution doesn't know both ends of a transaction and is allowed to comply as best as they can. In the specific rule being proposed, there's no such flexibility and goodwill you either have to have all the information or you can't comply with the rules. So that's why this is double a double standard. And that's why it'd be really bad for crypto businesses. All right, I've got a few questions there before we go on. So is it only in the scenario when you are withdrawing money from a bank over, say, $10,000 that this is asked? So when you are withdrawing over $10,000, what the bank will do is automatically report the fact that you, your identity, that you have withdrawn the amount over ten thousand dollars that you've withdrawn, um, but is it only in the scenario of a bank? Only in the scenario of a bank, not presently, not in the crypto context, right? So if you go to Coinbase and let's say mm. I have, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin in my Coinbase account, if I withdraw twenty thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin to a self custodied Bitcoin address, Coinbase is under no obligation to report that to the government. They might well file a suspicious activity report of their own volition, but presently. They have no obligation. This rule would create the obligation just as the banks have. So, sorry, no, the, the question I'm trying to ask, are there any other scenarios where I'm withdrawing cash from somewhere, say, I don't know, I'm trying to think of one. Say if I was in a casino yeah. and I won $50,000 and I was withdrawing it from then, do I also in that scenario yeah. have yes. to? So the so currency, transaction, currency transaction reports apply to a whole host of different kinds of entities and it's not just when you withdraw; it's also when you just have when you just conduct a transaction. So, for example, casinos are one. Car dealerships, for example, are another. So, if I go and I buy a car for twenty thousand dollars in cash, the car dealership has an obligation to report that. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. So that was my first question. And when when so say if I'm in the bank in the US, I mean we have a similar thing in the UK. They ask us, but I don't know if we're obliged to, and I always lie. <laughs> but when they so so say I go into my bank. No, let's 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 do it better. Let's say it's online and I'm withdrawing twenty thousand dollars from my uh, and I'm sending it to somebody else. No, they'll know in that scenario because they'll know what bank I'm sending it to. Yeah. Right. So I'm just working through in my head. So I go into the the bank. I go into Chase and I say I want to withdraw fifteen thousand dollars. What do they do? They say to me, "Okay, we need to know who what that's for." No, 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 they don't. So, so let's let's be clear. There's currency transaction reports, which is this obligation to simply alert the government. 
my customer has removed a substantial amount okay. of cash, which will put the government on notice to investigate me potentially exactly. for any number of, you know, financial crimes. And I'm guessing if you do it a few, a few times, it would, and it looks like, oh, look, he's doing this three times a week, we should look at this. Yeah. I mean, cash businesses actually really struggle, even if they're completely innocent cash businesses, because these reports do draw law enforcement scrutiny, basically, to the person who the report's being filed about. But that report does not need to affirmatively identify who I then took the $10,000 in cash and decided to pay. And it would be very difficult. It would be impossible to actually identify that person because I'm going to put $10,000 in my wallet and I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to pay one person and I'm going to go to the drugstore and pay another person and I'm going to pay my employees. You know, how, how do I even know who I'm going to pay? I don't know. So there's no counterparty identification requirement in the currency transaction report context. And there wouldn't necessarily be in the cryptocurrency transaction report context either. The problem is not the CTR requirement, the currency transaction requirement. The problem is the record-keeping requirement, which is distinct. They're trying to impose two new requirements. Mm -hmm. One is kind of fine because it's kind of like traditional financial regulatory policy. The other is extraordinary, this new record-keeping requirement, because it would force exchanges to always know their customer's counterparty in any transaction over $3,000. So not even $10,000, $3,000. But not your keys, not your Bitcoin, self-custody. I could just be withdrawing to my own wallet. Mm -hmm. So I just say it's to my own wallet. That's fine? Would that scenario be fine? You could. Um, so imagine this rule were to, were to be finalized the way it is. Um, you could go to your financial institution, your Coinbase, let's say, and say, hey, I want to withdraw $20,000 to this Bitcoin address. And they're going to say, whose Bitcoin address is that? And you can say, it's mine. And here's my physical address. And they will record that. And then you've got the Bitcoin and you can then do whatever you want with it. But that's creating a new obligation that does not exist for traditional payments. So when I go to the bank and I withdraw cash, I'm not asked to prove that it is, you know, uh, you know, or give any information about about uh, who the payee is. Oh yeah, I don't agree with it, but 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 I was just wondering what it was. And then if I'm in a scenario where I've got my own wallet that say has, say say I had a wallet, fortunate to have a million dollars of Bitcoin in it, and I wanted Peter to send to you for Coin Center, I wanted to make a fifty thousand dollar donation. Am I at that point myself obligated as an individual? To create no. a currency. Okay. 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 No, these these right, rules okay. only apply to financial institutions. And it's important to be okay. clear about that. Where, where this causes real problems is that it could cause a lot of sham compliance in the way that you just described, where like you, your customer just says, this is my address when it's not their address because they don't want the headache and you don't want the headache. And that's not how the law should work. That's just like our de minimis tax exemption. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't going to pay taxes on the one cent capital gains that they technically owe when they buy a quaint can of Coke with Bitcoin. And that, you know, but the law shouldn't require people to do illegal things, even if they're sort of minor, little harmless, illegal things. The law should be something that everyone can comply with and asks for reasonable mm -hmm. demands. And then the other problem is it's going to put a lot of friction between any exchange to individual transaction because the exchange is going to have to be this sort of fire barrier in between to say, is it over a certain amount? If it is, do we have name and physical address for this otherwise, you know, uh, undecipherable address? And the compliance people at these exchanges might eventually say, you know what, this is just a headache. 
Uh, you know, what if someone sends yeah. us five thousand dollars and we can never figure out who they are, so we can't give it to our customer? Do we send it back to them? Because that would be kind of like money laundering. You know, Bitcoin comes from an address, goes into our pooled wallet, and we send it back. That's money laundering. So what do we just segregate these things and give them to the state? What if the person then sues us saying we stole their property? This is a nightmare from a compliance standpoint. So I can imagine a compliance person who doesn't care so much about Bitcoin and just likes their job at one of these exchanges might say, you know what, let's just stop having Bitcoin payment addresses at all. People can sign up with our exchange with their email address and request payments at their email address. And people who want to pay them can sign up on our site as well and give us their name and physical address, and then we can connect them, which, of course, is exactly how Venmo works and how PayPal works. Mm. And this is not what Bitcoin is supposed to be. And it's also important to, to keep you remembering, it's not just about withdrawal, right? So maybe it's maybe it's it's a little onerous, but not incredibly onerous. If you if before you want to, um, you know, transact, you basically have to first get it to your own wallet that you self custody and then transact. It's onerous, maybe not the end of the world, but it's not just about withdrawing. It's also about receiving. So we're Coin Center. Let's say we have an account at an exchange. We make our address available to the public. Somebody sends us a $20,000 anonymous donation. Well, the exchange is going to say, give us the name and address of this person. We're going to say, I don't know who that is. Right? That's a big problem. Okay. So what you're saying is you're okay with the flag being sent to FinCEN, as before, someone's sent over $10,000. To, to be clear, it's it, it's not about being okay. We're not okay with the Bank Secrecy Act in no, general. No, of course, but the comp, it's, it's, you know. It's warrantless, it's warrantless surveillance. It's, yeah. it's yeah. mass data collection like Snowden, um, you know, revealed for emails and things just for our financial records. So we don't like it. But at the very least, we should have equal treatment suffering That's under this I mean. regime yeah. as a, an orphan. That's your comp your compromise is like you don't like it, but like at least this is in line with everything previously. So, and I'm guessing, I mean, they can already request this information from exchanges anyway, because they do have access to uh, chain analytics data. We know what chain analysis is doing, and I guess they could already then make their subpoena or whatever request it is to the exchange if they wanted to know this information. So it really is just. This slippery slope of mass surveillance. And then, so the question I ask is, do you think this is something they would do with bank transactions if they could? It just feels like Absolutely. something they can easily do with crypto. And is crypto still unfairly demonized? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'll let Jerry talk about the process that this rulemaking has taken so far. But let's point out something very important that in... 1994, they started a heightened customer due diligence rulemaking, FinCEN did, for banks and traditional financial institutions to do more to identify the people who are the beneficiaries of, of transfers in the traditional financial system. It took them six years to finish that rulemaking, and ours is happening in 15 days over Christmas. So, And is that legal for them to, to rush it through like that? I mean, obviously it is, but like, why is it happening in 15 days? Is this just some kind of like exit plan for Mnuchin? Yeah, good question. Is it legal? I would argue not. And, and this gets to um, really all the deficiencies in the, in the process that they've taken. So look, in the US, we have, um, like in you know, uh, most countries, there is regulation. Regulation basically is that the agency, not, not the elected Congress, not the elected representatives of the people, but 
um, unelected bureaucrats who have been delegated authority by Congress, they make law, right, under that delegation. What we have realized, and we realized fairly quickly after regulation started becoming a bigger part of, of government in the 40s, is that um, you can't just have unelected bureaucrats decide on a whim, you know, with little notice, with little opportunity for input, you know, one day, this is a new law. Here it is. Like, there's nobody voted on it. Nobody did anything. And so what Congress did to fix that was to create the Administrative Procedures Act. And the APA is basically a Bill of Rights that says, um, a Bill of Rights for administrative law, um, where it says, this is how the people can have notice that a law might be coming, can have input into uh, the development of that new law, um, and create some legitimacy, reintroduce some democracy into uh, what otherwise would be a completely undemocratic process. Um, the Administrative Procedure Act requires that agencies, um, number one, issue notice of you know, exactly what it is that they want to change in the law and give the public a meaningful comment period where the public can give input. They have to consider those comments um, before they finalize the rule. Um, the APA has a couple of exemptions um, where an agency can, if there's an emergency or if there's a special case, not do any of that. Okay, One is if it uh, pertains a foreign affair function of the United States government. Um, and so, of course, if you are going to have a rule um, that affects something in international relations that's going to piss off a particular government, let's say you're going to designate a country, a, you know, a foreign country, a particular thing or whatever, you don't want to you know, give notice of that um, or see comment. Um, in this case, FinCEN, uh, Treasury Department, is invoking that and saying, well, this is about anti-money laundering. We, we're doing this under the authority of the BSA and the Patriot Act, and those things um, courts have found have to do something with international relations, right, because money laundering is international. Also, they say, this network is international, the Bitcoin network. Seven, only 17% of nodes, they say, are in the U.S., so this is mostly international network. So therefore, we don't have to afford you the regular notice and comment, so we're only giving you 15 days. That's one argument that they're making. There's a big problem with that. The first is that um, the foreign affairs function exemption to notice and comment rulemaking is categorical, which means that if you invoke it, the point of it is that you do not give any notice and do not give any comment period at all. But here they're not doing that. They've given notice, so it's not as if they're afraid they're going to offend anybody. And they are only giving us a 15-day comment period. So, so that just makes no sense. And the other thing is they're invoking a good cause exemption where if you can show as an agency that there is good cause that giving notice and taking comment would be against the public interest, you don't have to do it. And in this case, they're saying, um, you know, we've already been in consultation with the cryptocurrency industry um, before this. And we think that if we give more time to comment, um, it could tip off criminals to move their funds out of exchanges where otherwise they would be covered by these rules. And here's the funny thing about that, right? Number one, again, this, this, this is the kind of thing where if you, were, if you really meant it, if you were serious about that, you would have given no notice. The fact that they gave notice 
tells us that that's not really what they care about. They don't care about tipping off people because they have to buff people. Yeah, that was the first thing I thought. Everyone knows criminals require 16 or 17 days to move their cryptocurrency off of exchanges and can't do it in 15. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's number one. Number two, you know, they say they've already consulted with the cryptocurrency industry and therefore this makes any further, you know, comment period unnecessary. The problem is it's th- their obligation is not to give a comment period you know, time for comment to the cryptocurrency industry, they have to give time for comment to the public. And the public includes crypto folks who are in crypto who are not in the industry and people who are just generally interested, right? It also kind of sets a bad precedent because what they're saying is, hey, if you consult with us before we have a proposed rule, um, then we'll use that against you to say that you can't have the normal comment period, right? And it's also the case that they, you know, they maybe sought comment from, the cryptocurrency industry on a general notion of new rules, but not on the specific proposal. So when you take all of that, they they have no good um, uh, really basis for the exceptions that they're claiming. But here's a more important thing. Why are they doing this? Why are they rushing it through? Well, it's clear. It's clear to anybody that the reason that they're doing it is because this administration ends on January 20th. And if they gave the normal comment period, they would not be able to finalize this rule. It would go into the next administration and they want to get it out. They want to rush it out. But why? Why is it so Uh, important to them? Why is this? So I think you'd have to ask um, the secretary. Um, Look, I think... We see this, for example, in the most recent FATF 12-month review of their virtual currency uh, guidelines, um, where there is a growing sentiment on the part of anti-money laundering, terrorist financing, policy people, it's very important to highlight policy people, that there could be a future where there is no need to use on-ramps and off-ramps, and if we allow people to just be able to transact any amounts between each other without intermediaries, we're going to lose all visibility. And I think that I think that kind of thinking has motivated the secretary. This is pure speculation on my part. You'd have to ask him why he's doing it. Um, the important thing to highlight, though, is that if you talk to law enforcement, if you talk to folks in the intelligence community, if you talk to people in the Justice Department, nobody wants this rule. This is not, number, number one, this is not, they will, they will tell you, this is not what, um, and if you really care about law enforcement, this is not what you should be spending your time on. You should be spending your time on non-compliant financial institutions, rogue exchanges, especially overseas, that will let anybody sign up without KYC, et cetera. That's what they, law enforcement cares about. They don't care about self-custody Bitcoin addresses. Um, and number two, th- this actually is going to make them lose visibility, right? Mm. They chain chain analytics software that they rely on depends on a regular interaction between self-custody Bitcoin addresses and the exchanges, right? And mm-hmm. this is going to drive people to go one way or the other. When does the 15-day deadline end or notice period end? January 4th. January 4th. And inauguration is 12th? 20th. 20th. And is there any kind of period, like grace period before inauguration where no new laws can be passed? Or is it, can they be passed up to the like 20th? You, you would think there, there should be, um, but yeah. no, there is not. 
Well, I mean, one thing that stood out to me recently is that why is any lame duck president allowed to change anything between yeah. certainly the uh, electoral college votes being passed and inauguration day? It just seems the most ludicrous time for any laws to be passed. I understand certain things with regards to kind of commuting sentences and you know, certain things like that. But in terms of actually creating new laws, it seems ludicrous. Are there ever scenarios where laws are created during this period and then very quickly the next administration reverses them? Yes. And in this case, it's important to, to note that, you know, I'm calling them a law because it, it has the effect of law, right? Mm. But this is not a bill that Congress is passing. It's not what we traditionally call law. This is a regulation, right, that's being promulgated okay. by an agency, FinCEN, Treasury Department. Um, and so when it comes to regulations, a couple things can happen. The next administration um, can try to immediately reverse it. But if it's if it's ultimately finalized within this administration, the next administration would have to um, begin a new rulemaking process to undo it. That's the requirement. If you make a rule through okay. rulemaking, you have to go through rulemaking to undo it. And that's the kind of thing where, for example, with this particular rule, I think it... I, I can't imagine that the new Biden administration is going to really spend the capital to do that. Right. Okay. Um, what you can't imagine is there is a provision where Congress, um, if both houses of Congress pass a joint resolution disapproving of the regulation, it kills the regulation. And it, it kills the regulation, and then the agency cannot regulate on a substantively similar uh, matter. That's called the Congressional Review Act. Next up, I talked to Jerry and Peter more about the proposed new regulations from FinCEN. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay, if you're new to Bitcoin, if you want to start buying Bitcoin, then Kraken is the place for you. It's my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin, and it is the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. They are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, and security is really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, they will support you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every possible tool you can need. So whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start buying Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. With their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly, today, we have my good friends over at BlockFi and what an amazing year they've had. Did you hear their recent massive announcement? BlockFi is about to launch a Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card in early 2021. This is something I've been massively excited about seeing. OK, check this out. Card users will be able to earn a market lead in 1.5% rewards in Bitcoin on every card purchase. There is a $200 annual fee, but you can earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin after spending $3,000 in the first three months. You can stack sats with all your card purchases. Now, the waitlist registration is open to all registered BlockFi clients. If you want to join the priority waiting list, then you need to open up a BlockFi account. The public waitlist is slated to open in early January. So if you want to check this out, I do recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So what are you guys doing? Like, I've, I've read your comments, but 
specifically, what what are you guys doing and what do you expect you to be able to achieve with this? Are you feeling confident you can water it down? Are you feeling confident you can de- delay it? Where are you at with this? Uh, you know, I wouldn't say we're confident of any of those things. I think we're happy with the efforts that we're making. I think best case scenario would be to make the secretary and folks at Treasury understand that if they continue down this path where they're just giving people 15 days of notice and comment, when this rule is finalized, it will be challenged in court, right, as completely illegitimate uh, for that rushed process, and and a court will overturn it. So hopefully, if they understand that, they will say, well, you know, as much as we want to try to get this done before we leave, it would make no sense to do that and to just have it overturned. So we'll go ahead and give the 30, 60 days that normally happens. That moves it into the Biden administration. And then once it's there, um, I can imagine that maybe the Biden administration does not. One thing that often happens when a new administration takes office is that they immediately freeze all pending regulation because they want to have a time to study it and see if they want to continue the previous administration's policy. So getting it you know, basically getting it into the next administration will be will be good. If we can't do that, then hopefully we can prevail upon the secretary and people at Treasury that it, it makes no sense to create a rule. I mean, FinCEN has a long tradition of having technology-neutral regulation where they create a rule and it applies equally to banks, to crypto exchanges, to money transmitters, to anybody, right? In this case, they're breaking that tradition and they're creating a special rule for crypto. We're saying, drop that. Give the same treatment to, that you do to banks, give it to crypto. Um, and I, and I, you know, that's the next best thing we hope that we can get. And then longer run, if the worst was to happen and the rule was to be finalized unchanged, in our comment, we make various constitutional arguments that this kind of warrantless surveillance is antithetical to the U.S. Constitution, to our Fourth Amendment right not to have information about us searched and seized without reasonable suspicion and, a, and an individualized warrant, because this is just bulk collection, collect all this information about your customers' counterparties, and also constitutional rights to anonymous assembly, actually. So there's a, there's a case that the Supreme Court heard NAACP versus Alabama, where they found that it was unconstitutional for a state, for Alabama, to obtain membership lists of private assembly, uh, members of the NAACP. And interestingly, when the Bank Secrecy Act first came around in the 1970s, which comes after the NAACP case, the ACLU challenged it in a case called California Bankers Association versus Schultz and said, we have California banks they're going to record all this information about people's donations to our accounts, and they'll be assembling lists of donors to the ACLU. And unfortunately, in that case, the ACLU's claims got thrown out of the case because the ACL couldn't yet prove that any of their donors had been subject to the reporting requirement. Now, in this case, if anybody donates to an organization like Coin Center at our self-hosted wallet address, and that donation is over $10,000, and it comes from a hosted wallet, from a Coinbase or from a Kraken, we will have standing to challenge this because it will automatically trigger a report that says this 
customer of ours made a donation to Coin Center or to the ACLU or to the EFF. And that will give these organizations standing to say, you can't just start compiling lists of all of the charitable organizations and political advocacy organizations that people donate to. That is antithetical to our First Amendment assembly rights. So these are long you know, battles that would have to be fought in the future. And they're not easy to get all the way to the Supreme Court and win, obviously. But these can also be credible threats, which is why we start raising these arguments now in the context of our mm. comment um, to this rulemaking. But by the way, I've never heard of the term unhosted wallet before this. <laughs> yeah, I slipped up and so I, where, I shouldn't have. <laughs> who, who came up with the unhosted wallet, hosted wallet? I, what is an unhosted wallet? Are we talking about wallets which aren't held by a company? Yeah. Yes. So... Um, I think the way uh, it'd be interesting to try to use Google to to figure out the the first occurrence of this, but uh, you know I blame government, right? Um, I think that um, people always talk about hosted wallets, and when you talk about a hosted wallet, it's pretty clear what you mean. You mean Coinbase, Kraken, right? Um, somebody is hosting a wallet for you. Yeah, and I think then when talking about everything else, they said, well, what's the opposite of hosted? <laughs> and sort of they 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 settled on this language. Uh, generally speaking, <laughs> uh, how are the various agencies now? Because this is a very different year. You know, I've got to know you guys since the last bull market, really during a bear market, a very difficult times for a lot of people involved in Bitcoin, just knuckling down and working hard. Then we've had this insane year in this last year where we've seen MicroStrategy put $1.3 billion into Bitcoin. We've seen Square put $50 million in. We've seen that gold company, Ruffers, I think it is, put $750 million in. Like, And this seems to be unrelenting. This is now a, a very serious... Um, off-ramp for for the dollar for people who are very nervous about inflation who feel like bitcoin is a, a safe investment in my mind that itself creates some kind of regulatory moat in that i i'm these days don't think of bitcoin getting banned yes it can become highly regulated but from you guys where are you with regards to that with the various agencies is is bitcoin and i, I tend to stick to bitcoin but is bitcoin now generally accepted are we beyond the days of thinking it can be something that can be banned and also even if they tried would they be under too much legal challenge now because of the threat it does to companies within the u.s so it's a lot of questions in there in one i'll let peter talk about the you know whether a ban is legally even possible um but i'll just say that yeah i i think it's much more accepted number one it's much more understood um by folks in government and it's much more uh, accepted as a fact. And I think as they see more and more very serious um, uh, folks begin to use it, um, it you know, they get comfortable, right? Um, the mainstream likes the mainstream. So uh, you know, I wouldn't worry about, let's say, the SEC saying Bitcoin's a security all of a sudden. I, I think that that ship is very much sailed. Uh, you know, I, I think where the challenges come in is twofold. One is taxation. In the U.S., at least, um, we have just a complete mess with what the rules are related to taxation, um, and and I think we need you know we need to um, try to fix those. And then, lastly, it's related to anti-money laundering, exactly what we're facing right now. You can imagine that the more popular, the more useful um, Bitcoin and crypto becomes, the more uh, anti-money laundering authorities are going to want to put it in a 
uh, in a box, right, that they can uh, control. And I think, quite frankly, that the anti-money laundering authorities who would do that are not so much motivated by Bitcoin. They're motivated by stable coins, right? They're very worried. So when, when, when Libra was announced, even though you could, since 2009, um, any two people in the world could send money to each other in any amount peer-to-peer through Bitcoin, it was the announcement of Libra that really made the light bulb go off on, on in anti-money laundering regulators' minds that, oh my God, you're telling me that if Facebook turns us on, billions of people will be able to send each other any amount of money peer-to-peer. And so I think as um, you have more use of stable coins and uh, central bank digital currencies continue to be talked about, that drives anti-money laundering regulators to want to put all of crypto, including Bitcoin, in a box. I don't think a ban is in the is possible though. And maybe Peter, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So a ban would be the easiest thing to fight on legal and constitutional grounds because in order to actually ban Bitcoin, you'd have to ban people's ability to run software on computers. You'd literally have to you'd have to say that we can pass a law that says that people aren't allowed to perform math on you know a calculator effectively, and that that obviously has grave First Amendment um, you know deficiencies. But our opponents here are probably much smarter than that and wouldn't go for an outright ban, knowing that it would be hard to enforce and likely to be challenged. So, you know, I, I don't mean to be conspiratorial, and I'm usually not. I'm usually the person on Twitter who says, like, chill out, crypto Twitter. This isn't like a unified force in the government coming for this technology. This is just random regulators doing random things, and you're associating them all together. But I will say this. When Jerry says that law enforcement doesn't want this change, that should be weird. Because law enforcement is the, is the entity that most cares about money laundering and capabilities for money laundering. And law enforcement would be the organizations like the DOJ and the FBI that would be the first in theory to ask for more record keeping requirements if there were actual problems with money laundering in Bitcoin. And the fact of the matter is there's much more money laundering happening in the traditional financial sphere, and it's much harder to find the information relevant to that money laundering because the traditional financial sphere has terrible record-keeping habits. And so why are we getting a more severe record-keeping requirement than traditional finance? I think, yes, this administration might want to do it and do it quickly before they leave, but what motivation could be behind that? You know, we've always waited for banks to sort of show up and lobby Congress to kill this technology. And the way you would kill it is with compliance. You'd say, well, we banks have to suffer all these compliance obligations, so we should place some obligations on crypto companies, too. And then the obligations that get asked for happen to be things that companies can't comply with. And, oh, no, you just can't deal with this stuff anymore. I think that's a realistic way that we'd see people actually bring, you know, really extra legal and and unfair challenges to this technology through lawmaking and through rulemaking. And they're harder to fight because they happen sort of sub silentio, as the court would call it, rather than in a law that comes out boldly and says, we want to ban this tech. Right. Do you think these, therefore, may be future problems that um, I guess you guys will be very conscious of, but you know, with Bitcoin at $23,000, you know, it's very impressive. We're all very impressed by that. When Bitcoin's worth $230,000 or much higher, and it's in trillions in market cap, and lots of people are realizing, I'd rather use this than use the dollar because, you know, it's holds its value. And all these 
you know, ideological reasons we have. Are you preparing yourself for bigger fights, therefore, down the line? We're always prepared. We're born ready. Yeah, man. I love that shit. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I, I, uh, like, I do. I, you know, um, maybe this is where we have a different, and I, and I wonder where Peter thinks, but maybe this is where we have a different assessment. I'm not sure that Bitcoin poses a threat to the dollar the way, you know, as a day-to-day medium of exchange, um, the way that, you know, you would think the government would really come after. If it be- if Bitcoin, however, becomes something that is really a gold substitute, and sure, it's going to be used for censorship-resistant payments by people who need to, and that's, quite frankly, one of the main reasons I'm motivated to work uh, uh, for, for Bitcoin. While that's still possible, if it's mainly used as a store value very akin to gold, I think that's a that's a different um, challenge to government, right? So maybe it's a different assessment. And look, we're always updating our assessment as you know reality unfolds. Yeah, and and we have been doing work for the past six years building these arguments in preparation for fights like this one and ones on the horizon. So the constitutional arguments that I, you know, stuck in our comment are from a paper that we wrote two years ago called Electronic Cash, Decentralized Exchange, and the Constitution. And we've got other papers, actually, that we've written that we haven't even published because we're holding them in reserve. Um, uh, nice. I know that sounds a little weird, but... No, no, it's good. It, 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 it's pragmatic. And this is why we were able to write a comment in response to this rulemaking in, what, two or three days after it was announced and before the rulemaking was even published in the Federal Register and start in the 15-day comment period started. Not to... Not to justify their short comment period, we're able to do this because uh, we're focused on this. The public at large has no idea largely what's happening, and it's outrageous that they're given fairly little time to even understand or or respond. Uh, I get so it's one of the funny things is we talk a lot about funding open source developers and how important it is, and I've put some pressure on some some exchanges this year, and they've uh, thankfully they've funded those are you got don't just say no for the sake of it but are you guys funded enough like um are, are people aware enough of what you're doing like i know how important so, you are and and are, <laughs> are, are you like does do we need to shine a bigger light on this so i i appreciate that question so look we um are funded enough where we can continue to operate as we've been operating um for the foreseeable future um and we're very uh, grateful to all of our donors um, that said, I would welcome much more funding from a much wider and diverse group of people. Uh, and I would welcome that for two reasons. One is everybody should be involved. Everybody who is benefiting from our work should be contributing. And I, you know, there are a lot of people who, um, right now are not, and that's partly because they're not aware of what we're doing, um, et cetera. Um, in the past months, you know, since when the Stable Act was introduced, um, now with this, I think people are beginning to notice what we're doing. And so you're seeing, we're seeing a lot more, especially small dollar donations from the community for which we're, you know, extremely grateful. We think that's awesome. We're, we're getting that, that grassroots, um, support because it invests people in our work and it keeps people attuned to what we're doing. Uh, so that's great. The other thing is, if we have to engage in a legal challenge, right? So to date, we've never had to file a lawsuit, right? To date, we've been engaged in uh, consulting, lobbying government, filing comment letters, testifying before Congress, right? Um, and getting good results. But at some point, we may have to file a lawsuit. And those are very expensive. 
And so as that becomes more likely, it's going to be good to have a war chest for that purpose. Okay. I mean, the next year is the year to do it, but everyone's going to be making a lot of money over the next 12 months. Uh, it's a yeah. real time to put some pressure on people. Um, it, but is there, I, I guess what I'm getting at is like, is there, if you could, if you receive significantly more funding, there's specific things that you're not able to do yet that you want to do, or do you really just like want the war chest? Because I'm happy to make some noise about this. Yeah, it's more the war chest right yeah. now. If I was honest, right now is the war chest. Um, I don't think there's anything that we want to do that we can't do right now. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll pressure some people. Okay. So <laughs> the, the the other thing I just wanted to understand a bit more is what what is what is the status of the Stable Act? Where what does it actually mean? What are the implications for that? Yeah. So the Stable Act is this piece of legislation that's been floated by. Um, Representative Tlaib in the House and, and others, mostly from the sort of farther left of the Democratic Party. Uh, and what it would do is it would say that anything that, you know, goes by the name dollar, digital dollar, et cetera, anything that tries to maintain parity with the dollar, anything that is at all dollar-like, including even PayPal balances that are dollar-denominated and have nothing to do with cryptocurrency, fit a definition that is in the law called stablecoin. And if you fit the definition of stablecoin, the only people allowed to issue that stablecoin are federally insured banks. And that's a radical change because obviously most stablecoins out there are from regulated entities like, I don't know, Gemini Dollars comes from a New York trust company. USDC comes from licensed money transmitters. Uh, PayPal balances come from PayPal, a money transmitter. And none of these are federally insured banks, but they're allowed to do payments that are dollar based. This bill was passed that all would be dead. And then the thing that's actually really bad about this piece of legislation, because that's bad enough, it's sort of a full re-architecting of how we do uh, financial regulation that will be highly disruptive. The part that's really bad is even decentralized um, so-called stable coins, even something like a make or die that are, you know, just stuff out there in Ethereum smart contracts would be, you know, illegal because they're not being issued by a chartered bank. And people who are validating transactions on the blockchain for those transactions, for those DAI transactions or whatever on the Ethereum blockchain, or maybe anchored in the Bitcoin blockchain, because you could anchor colored coin type information in the Bitcoin blockchain for stable coins. Even those validators, the people who maintain the blockchain, could be liable under the way the law is drafted simply for validating a block that included someone else's transaction. They have no idea what's going on. That is a stable coin transaction. And so basically, the only way to enforce that part of the law would be um, midnight raids, if you will, where you have servers in a basement, um, or maybe it's just, you know, your smartphone or something, and you are complicit in furthering other people's stablecoin issuing activity in controversion of the Stable Act, and we're going to arrest you and seize your computer. That is obviously a nightmare. There's reasonable debate to be had about whether we should allow money transmitters to issue coins versus banks if they're dollar-based, but there should, no be, there should not be reasonable debate whether we should outlaw maintaining blockchains simply because maintaining blockchains could um, mean that you maintain transactions that are subject to the law. Yeah. It's one of the interesting things about the US leading a lot of the regulations is that I also kind of like have this underlying feeling that the majority of Bitcoin being held is being held in the US. So actually a lot of the uh, wealth or the uh, economic wealth behind Bitcoin is being held in the US. So it's kind of a, it's kind of an own goal to damage Bitcoin right now for the, for the US in some ways. I don't know if that's actually true. It's just a gut feeling I have. I think that's right. And, you know, it's important to point out to your listeners that this this bill is 
not likely to become law. It it comes from a sort of fringe element of the Democratic Party, which has control of the House, doesn't have control of the Senate. Even if it was to pass both houses in the future at some point, it's unlikely that a moderate like Biden would sign something like this. This is not an existential threat. It's far less of an existential threat than, say, the the Treasury rulemaking that's happening right now. Uh, and neither of them are, of course, truly existential, like outright bans or things like that. And I will say that, you know, um, some of the proponents of the Stable Act have been pretty good on this other stuff, on this privacy stuff. I was having a Twitter conversation with Rohan Gray, which a lot of people might know as one of the sort of proponents of the Stable Act on Twitter. And he actually got my back uh, just earlier today saying, you shouldn't be looking for parity with the traditional financial systems record keeping requirements. Those requirements are immoral. (laughs) They are a surveillance state and everyone's trying to kill cash. We know this. You should be fighting for no record keeping requirements. And I I always say like, yeah, Rohan, I'm with you, buddy. Um, Privacy. But right now we just need to survive. (laughs) Well, it does feel like there's some... um... There's some people who are going to be on your side coming into government. I've spoken recently to uh, Senator Lummis. Obviously, Warren Davison is doing a lot of stuff. Does it feel like to you there's a mm-hmm. shift in, in momentum of people who are starting to understand these currencies? Do you feel that? I mean, you definitely see a greater understanding of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency throughout the government, right? Because you're starting from such a low base um, a few <laughs> years ago, right? So you definitely see more, uh, you know. I think those people that you mentioned are real champions um, of, of, of Bitcoin and the technology, um, but they're in a distinct minority. The good thing is that, you know, there is a distinct minority of Bitcoin champions and Bitcoin detractors. Right. Right. And so um, we're happy to have uh, the champions. Um, we're lucky we have just a few detractors. You know, I, I wouldn't call it a shift that's going to really be super meaningful. Right. But it, it is a shift. People are, are getting it now in a way they did it before. And I just want to point out one thing in case anything we've said leads your listeners to think the wrong thing. This is not a partisan issue. We've got Republicans on our side and Democrats on our side. So we've mostly been talking in this call about, you know, Secretary Mnuchin, very visible Republican administration, bringing this rather unfair rule. Uh, Important to note that sort of an answer to the Stablecoin Act and maybe even this rule, I'd have to think about it as a way to protect Bitcoin is in creating a safe harbor for people who are maintaining the blockchain and not holding other people's funds. And we've actually had a really great champion in the House, Representative Tom Emmer, who's a Republican, repeatedly now introduce a safe harbor piece of legislation. Um, and, And hopefully one day we can get the kind of momentum and interest in a piece of legislation like that to pass it. But it's a great piece of legislation. It says, look, if you're not holding other people's money, you're just maintaining a public good by running a node validating transactions, these laws can't apply to you, laws that criminalize that activity. So it goes both ways. You know, we've always had Democrat champions and Democrat detractors and Republican champions and Republican detractors. Yeah. I mean, you know, this the stable, the stable act is Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat. This rule is Steve Mnuchin, a Republican. Um, So getting it from all sides. So I guess there's no kind of, I can't look into anything that we've got a Democrat um, administration coming in, Biden administration, that 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 would be a better administration or worse administration to work with. You've got, you won't know, you won't know I, yet. I'd say as, as a moderate versus a, a more radical side of one party or the other, he's probably less dangerous. Yeah. Than- I think a lot of it's going to depend on um, the personnel that he um, 
picks to staff Treasury, for example, right? So who's going to be um, the undersecretary in charge of terrorist financing and financial crimes, right? Um, that's going to be very important. And what are they going to care about more? Are they going to care more about uh, sort of theoretical threats to money laundering? Um, or are they going to care about competition with China, right? So if you think about it, China is building a centralized blockchain strategy. They're building a central bank digital currency. If the U.S. wants to compete, not just with China, but globally, its best bet is to bet on open networks. It's what works worked in the past, right? The U.S. dominates the internet um, because it fostered a completely open and permissionless network. And Americans, by their nature, thrive on those um, in, in that kind of uh, uh, environment. While the U.S., you know, while people in the U.S. and the U.S. government was fostering the internet, France was building Minitel, right, which was a closed um, national uh, computer network that never got past like 16-bit graphics while the internet just, you know, soared past it because it was open and permissionless. So if you, you know, we have the playbook of how we can win against China, let them do their centralized stuff and let's bet on open networks here in the U.S. And I think some, but, you know, uh, there's no reason why the Biden administration should not be able to get that. It's a very solid argument. Brilliant. Well, look, this was really useful. I appreciate you coming on. Is there anything else, any other messages you want to uh, land before we leave? Obviously, you should tell people where to find out more information and donate money. But uh, yes. anything else you wanted to land? Yeah. So, you know, coincenter.org is where you can find all of our information, including our recently published comments. You can also go to coincenter.org slash donate. Um, to support us, but very important related to this rulemaking. If you go to our website and you click on the blog post where we talk about this, it's right on the homepage, mm -hmm. you will find a link to a form that allows you to, as an American citizen, email Secretary Mnuchin and tell him not to pass an unfair rule. So okay. we're hoping that all of your listeners will go to our website and email Secretary Manoogian. Well, I will push them. Unfortunately, I can't. I can't do that being a British citizen, and I don't think he would. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any restriction on non-citizens from commenting. Well, you're for, you're welcome to send an email to the secretary and tell him that he shouldn't do this to his own country. Yeah, I don't like Manoogian. <laughs> right listen this is brilliant guys um i'm gonna do a bit of a push trying to get people to encourage them to um encourage people to make donations to coin center um i think you're doing Thank brilliant you. work i think it's i think it's highly valued and undervalued at the same time if that makes sense and i think next year when everyone's making billions of dollars they should certainly look to uh, filter a little bit your way so keep up the amazing work and uh as you know my podcast is always an open platform any issue you want to come on at any point and talk about it uh, just Tell Niraj to drop me a line and we'll do it. All right. Thank you so much, Peter. We Have really a great Christmas. It. Thanks, Peter. You too. Okay. So what did you think of that? It's always great to have Peter and Jerry on. Love what those guys are doing. Love what the team's doing. Big shout out to Niraj as well. He often helps me when I'm planning these shows. So thank you, Niraj. Okay. So Coin Center does an amazing job in fighting regulations like this. And if you want to join them in opposing this, you can do so by writing a FinCEN a message. Head over to regulation.gov to do this. And I've included a direct link in the show notes if you need it. Now, this is just another on a long list of shitty things that Mnuchin has been involved with. If you want to hear more about him, I did make a four-part series about him called Robin Hood for my other podcast, Defiant, so please do go and check that out. 
Also, make sure you support Coin Center. Head over to their website. They do need your support. We shouldn't just be supporting developers. We should support Coin Center and all the amazing work they do to fight against regulations. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one. If you do want to reach out to me, you can do on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. And outside of that, if you want to support the show, please head over to iTunes and leave me a review. I am working hard on my plans for next year. So many cool things happening. It's been a really amazing year, and I honestly, I'm so grateful to all the support everyone's given me. Okay, have a great rest of your weekend, and I will see you all next week.